0: Hey, everyone. I have a quick favor to ask. We are up for a Signal Award. This is like a podcast awards thing. And uh, we're in the category of Best Commute Podcast. It would be really lovely if people wanted to go and vote for us in that category. It is the Signal Awards, and the category is Best Commute Podcast. If you went over there and voted for Atlas Obscura, I would be
1: very grateful. Okay, onto the show.
0: My partner and I are in his old land cruiser, rattling around this winding mountain road. We're driving through thick brush, bamboo groves, and towering trees dripping with green lichen. We're in the Aberdares, a national park in central Kenya. My partner, Viraj, is driving. He's from Nairobi, which is about four hours south from here. And we made the drive up because we were looking for a tree. One specific tree. In the middle of this pretty massive forest. We'd gone searching for it a year earlier on a camping trip, just the two of us and a friend. But call us GPS-dependent millennials, we couldn't find it. So this time, we weren't messing around. We went with a crew from the Kenya Wildlife Service. During Kenya's liberation movement, this tree functioned as a covert post office. And the only people who knew about it had sworn on their own lives to keep it a secret. I'm Abby Peralt, and this is Atlas Obscura. Today, the story of the Dedan Kimathi Post Office, and the role it played in Kenya's struggle for independence. A movement that, quite literally, had roots in this forest. That's after this. of the mountain, huh? mm-hmm. So, admittedly, when you go with a guide, finding the tree takes not a lot of time. About 20, 30 minutes from the edge of the park, we come to a turnoff, and we park the car. Okay, want
1: to exit? Yeah.
0: We get out, we walk to the edge of the clearing, looking out and up, you can see Mount Kenya in the distance and looking down. What's up? Oh, the elephant I know, I was wondering. This is, um... And looking in front of us, this massive tree.
1: The tree is evergreen. Uh, it's quite wide in terms of radius. I think it's around uh, around 20 yards.
0: That's Mr. Geoffrey
1: Jeffrey I'm the customer service in charge here.
0: Mr. Kariuki works with the Kenya Wildlife Service, He's talking to a few other people in our group, standing in front of this sprawling tree. It's encased by thick vines that descend from the top, twist around its trunk, and stretch down to the ground like fingers. It looks like this because this isn't just one tree. It's a tree that makes its home on top of another tree, and then grows downward, eventually rooting itself in the soil, locking in its host. As it grows, the host tree in the middle dies and rots, leaving a hollow core. But the new tree's long roots are sturdy enough to stand on their own. In English, it's called the strangler fig. And its name, and actually a lot of the language used to describe it in a lot of English language media, is pretty violent and negative. The host tree's fate is now sealed, for it is in the clutches of
1: a strangler fig.
0: But in Kikuyu, it's called the Mgumo, and it's actually considered to be really sacred.
1: In my early years, my childhood, I was taught that uh, the tree is where my kingsmen come and make their sacrifices, so we should not even pray around it. So I find it- uh, The Mgumo,
0: for centuries, was a place of great spiritual importance. Such importance that a lot of these trees were chopped down by Christian missionaries. Even
1: Even in my own village, we don't joke around with them anymore. You can't cut it. You can't cut it.
0: And that is Peter. Peter works in tourism and had come along to brush up on the history of the Kimathi Post Office. But he was also telling us about the role this species plays in his own community. Yeah, you
1: can't mess with them because they're so big. When this tree grows and it's near to your home, you can't want to mess with it because it gives a lot of shade and when it feeds, when it has the fruit, we have a lot of bats.
0: The fruits feed birds and other animals and the strong root system provides shelter for a lot of different species. It's hard to ignore the symmetry with how this specific tree and its history has been talked about. The story of the Dedan Kimathi post office is the story of the Mau Mau, which for a really long time has also been vilified, mostly across the West. So to hear a fuller story of this tree and the history it holds, we turn to its namesake, Dedan Kimathi, a freedom fighter and leader of the Mau Mau.
1: He was a leader, someone who could talk to people and people listen. He was seriously tortured and uh, eventually killed.
0: Kimathi was born in 1920, into a Kenya under British colonial rule. He lived in the Central Highlands, which is home to rolling green mountains, lush forests, and really good land for farming. And Kimathi was Kikuyu, Kenya's largest ethnic group which, for centuries, made up the vast majority of people living and farming there. But during colonization, that started to change.
1: The white came and settled mostly on their land. You could be told to move out of this land. It's being occupied by another guy. They were finding themselves being pushed, pushed, pushed.
0: Pushed off their land, a lot of Kikuyu people were then funneled into these overcrowded reservations that the British called Native Reserves. They were forced to work on European plantations in order to pay taxes to the colonial government that had stolen their land and livelihood in the first place. Amidst all of this, Dedan Kimathi had been able to go to school for a while. He was really talented at writing, debates, anything that had to do with persuasive communication. But when he got older, he had to drop out because he couldn't afford school fees. And, like a lot of other Kenyans at that time, he joined the Colonial Armed Forces. By the time World War II rolled around, a huge number of Kenyans were fighting for the British, risking their lives to end the fascism and racism of the Nazis. But, after the war ended, Kenyans came home to a country ruled by a regime operating under these same racist principles. So, the Kenyan people started to organize. A number of activists, politicians, and leaders emerged calling for decolonization. But a lot of them were arrested. So a different kind of group started taking root. This was the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, a.k.a. the Mau Mau. As the Land and Freedom Army grew, Kimathi was moving up the ranks. His way with words made him a natural leader. And it was a serious organization, New recruits were forced to take an oath to oust the colonizers no matter the cost. And the British did not like the sound
1: of that. There was a seriousness of the fight, so they declared the state of emergency.
0: The colonial government ramped up surveillance.
1: That is when people are told now they need to wear identification on their neck, yes.
0: Thousands of Kenyans were thrown into detention centers, and those who weren't, their lives were in pretty much constant danger.
1: If a white man came across a black man with a weapon, they shoot on them. So in
0: 1952, Kimathi retreated deep into the Aberdares, the densely forested mountain range in central Kenya.
1: So he was able to influence people to go to the forest and communicate effectively that we need to liberate this country. But they said that when, when they decided to call for the reparation, no young man was left in the village. They all came.
0: Hundreds, then thousands of people followed Kimathi, taking up residence in the bush.
1: The Britons would not come so much deep into the forest because it never gave them, gave them the advantage. If they came in so deep into the bush, the advantage was to the Mau Mau. Remember, they lived there. So they had an upper hand over them.
0: So instead the British dropped six million bombs on the forest. Six million bombs. But the liberation fighters stayed put. They found a way to live here for nearly four years, among bamboo forests so dense they block out the sun, and grassy moorlands where the wind cuts into your bones and the mud clutches at your boots. But it wasn't just about surviving— it was also about actively fighting back, which meant organizing across miles of harsh terrain. And this is where this Mugumu tree comes into the picture. It became a central hub of communication, a place where Kimathi and other generals and freedom fighters came to leave messages for each other.
1: So another general would come all the way up to here and see whether there's anything written on it.
0: There are a couple of versions of exactly how messages were passed. The version we heard from Mr. Karyuki was that the bark of the tree itself became a message board.
1: — Information was being left by way of uh, writing on the back of the mogumo tree. And then you could do something like a tick. Or something oh. to show that the inform the information was
0: like a red, yes. like a WhatsApp or WhatsApp check. check. Yeah, yes. I've got it. <laughs> yes. Yes. We are still going back
1: red. the tradition. It yes, Yeah, yeah, received and on the other end. Yeah. Right. So, yeah.
0: And then he yeah. says the message would eventually disappear. In,
1: in the next like three months, it's covered by the, the by the bark, the bark of the tree. Oh, it wow. grows, and then you cannot get the information anymore.
0: Standing there in front of the post office tree, there's something really powerful about the idea of messages being carved into the tree, to think that the tree is still holding this history in its very body. It's possible that some messages were carved into the bark, but I also heard another account from historian Dr. Karangi. He interviewed a lot of former Mau Mau fighters. And he told me that messengers would write on slips of paper, fold them into bamboo, and tuck them into the natural crevices in the tree. Whatever the method, this tree played a big role in keeping the Kenya Land and Freedom Army connected. uh, The other
1: thing maybe I I need to mention, it was not just, the message was not just here Mm. alone. Alone, yes. we have
0: Peter and Mr. Kariuki and, say that this tree was part of a much larger network of communication. Yes. We have
1: caves. We even have caves. And some caves which they encrypt things. Yes. Which even Messages
0: could be left in caves, or branches, arranged in a certain way in the middle of a path to communicate danger ahead or directions to the nearest camp. Really the whole forest became a part of the resistance effort. Even the wildlife. They
1: could smear the the animal the animal dung on them so that they could smell like animals. So the animals are most likely to smell them as their as their own or any other herbivore.
0: And once the animals got used to them, they actually in a way kind of became allies. There's this really beautiful passage from an autobiography of a former Mau Mau member. We've linked to it in the show notes. And he says that the Mau Mau studied the animals' behavior, the calls of the birds and the monkeys, and began to use them as this kind of alarm system. If some animals smelled the soap or detergent of a colonial soldier entering the forest, they'd react differently. Some birds would sing their alarm call. Other animals might run. Recognizing this, some of the Mau Mau living in the forest actually banned the hunting of some of these animals. This kept the fighters safe. But sometimes the Maumau had to leave the refuge of the Aberdares. In October 1956, Dedan Kimathi slipped out of the forest in search of food and supplies in a nearby town. When police spotted him walking away with some sugarcane and corn, they shot him in the leg. He was tortured, tried, and hung. Uh,
1: the Britons were... Relentless mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to have him arrested mm-hmm. uh, They believed that uh, once they they arrest uh, Kemadi mm-hmm. the, the issue of liberation and all that uh, would like either Cease oh. or there would be no 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 further fights after that, mm-hmm. but shock to them that uh, even upon arresting him the the urge to liberate I think it was moved uh, a gear ahead, and uh, there was no no going back.
0: There was no going back. The conflict lasted for eight years, but the movement stayed strong. Finally, in 1963, Kenya officially became an independent nation. And the legacy of Kimathi's commitment to language and record-keeping kind of lived on in the post office tree.
1: That's why we were able to gain our independence, right? Yes. Yes, Communication was very vital. Very vital. Very, Very nice.
0: To this day, there's a lot we don't know about the struggle leading up to independence. The dissolving British Empire made it a practice to burn or lock away a huge number of files that documented the reality of what happened in some former colonies. And there are not too many Mau Mau fighters who are still alive today.
1: they are now aged, very aged. And uh, if you look at them, majority of them um, are still struggling.
0: How Mr. Karyuki sees it, the tens of thousands of people who risked their lives for liberation were never given any kind of compensation or real recognition for their struggle. And
1: uh, those who really, really fought for it, those who paid the price, I don't think they were compensated effectively or to, their, to, their, to their suffering, yes.
0: But as time passes, the global narrative about the Kenyan struggle for independence is changing. Old European depictions of the Mau Mau are falling away, especially as the scale of the violence that they were subjected to comes to light. In the end, it's estimated that about 30 European settlers had been killed while over one million Kenyans were killed, tortured, imprisoned, or disappeared. And that story is held in this tree, which maybe is kind of a text itself. One that refused to be erased, or chopped down, or bombed — a text that's rooted in the land, echoed in the alarm calls of the birds that it feeds — a living text that continues to evolve, to be in dialogue with messengers, old and new.
1: Uh, I've brought my son here. He has he has seen it. He has asked a lot of questions about it. Though he's still young, he may not understand, but I will pass that on to my generation, my upcoming generation.
0: very special thank you to Mr. Jeffrey Karayuki for taking us to this tree and telling us this history. Thanks to Dr. Matthew Karangi for talking with me about the spiritual importance of magumu trees and how they were used by the Mau Mau. And to Peter Musioki Mukenya, who also gave us so much history about the Mugumu tree. And lastly, to my partner, Viraj, for the great driving, context, and snacks.
1: You want more? Uh, no, 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 maybe some crypto Yeah, yeah. You want?
0: Our podcast is a co production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Dylan Therese,
1: Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka,
0: Camille Stanley,
1: Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss,
0: Gabby Gladney, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. Witness Docs from Stitcher.